The first thing you should know is that the nonprofit sector had to come up with a more palatable name for it. Sure, you could call it a state giving, but the word estate feels like it's a program only for the rich and famous. So the sector could go with something upbeat, with an exclamation point, a, a call to action, if you will, like, leave us in your will. I like to think of it as a program where you can plan to give later. My guest today launched a planned giving program from the ground up. I was going to say from six feet underground, but I thought that was in poor taste. She worked for a mature organization, and the chief development officer was getting letters from attorneys about sizable requests that had been left by a deceased member of the organization's stakeholder community, total surprises, and sizable amounts. The smart question the organization asked was, was this one. What if we actually built a planned giving program and promoted it? We have folks doing it. It's not even a real thing. Before my guest was given the job of building this program, her organization was seeing close to $1 million in bequests each year. Surprise gifts, like, like manna from heaven. Who doesn't want manna? But who has a certain queasy feeling thinking about raising this with a board member or generous donor? You have been so generous during your life. What plans do you have for the afterlife? I bet our guest has a much better opener for this conversation than that. Maybe she can use me as a guinea pig. That, that would be fun or queasy or, or both. Let's get to it. Life is short, you know. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. My guest today is Judy O'Kelly. She's the program officer for the National LGBT Bar. She leads a broad range of programs, including the Bar's Law School Affiliate Program and supporting the work of the Family Law Institute. She brings nearly 25 years of legal and political experience working for equality within the LGBT community. While in law school, she worked against anti-gay ballot initiatives in Oregon. After graduating and entering private practice, she moved to Georgia, worked on behalf of local and national LGBT groups as a pro bono attorney, drafting and lobbying for successful non-discrimination protections and domestic partner benefit programs for several Georgia municipalities, including Athens and Atlanta. She was also the lead plaintiff from 04 to 06 in the case of O'Kelly versus Purdue, in which Lambda Legal, the Georgia ACLU and the law firm of Alston and Byrd sought to strike down Georgia's anti-marriage amendment. She then spent over 11 years in senior roles at Lambda Legal, a national high-impact litigation, education, and advocacy organization. Judy has roots in D.C. as well as Juneau, Alaska, but she currently calls Seattle home where she lives with her husband and her twin teenagers. Now, Judy is my Facebook friend, but she's also a, like a friend friend. That said, I do want to say that her teenage twins really look like they actually enjoy spending time with her and her husband. If nothing else, that makes her special. Judy, I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Joan. It's always fun and informative to listen to your podcast, and I'm really thrilled to get to be part of it. Well, let's get to it. Um, so before we dig into plant giving, there's sort of just... Um, one question and first a comment. So having led a gay rights organization for a decade, I I learned something really important that the, the LGBT community simply cannot secure equality without broadening the tent to include very active, engaged, straight allies. You are hands down one of the fiercest straight allies I have had the privilege to know. Um, and 
I'm uh, the reason I'm asking this is because I believe the, an- the your answer has relevance to any group of citizens, whether it's African Americans, Hispanics, immigrants. Could you shed like really quickly some light on how movements engage allies? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for those kind words, Tom. I think there are at least two valuable and maybe not exactly positives, but kind of realities that create opportunities that any ally to any civil rights movement brings to the table. So first, no matter how much you care, no matter how much you love members of that targeted group, there is a personal emotional distance of not actually being the target of discrimination or even hatred when we're talking about that group. There's obviously a spectrum of distance here. You know, if you're a parent or a spouse of a targeted person, you might feel very personally attacked and certainly very involved. But typically as an ally, you just don't feel that same level of fear and vulnerability that you would feel if you were a member of the group advocating for yourself. Right. So Mm -hmm. that opens up an opportunity to kind of brush in where angels would otherwise fear the thread. So you can engage your seatmate on an airplane about same-sex marriage equality without fear. You can go door-to-door and talk about equality for transgender people or wear a T-shirt supporting immigrants. And even if you know intellectually that you might face some rejection for that, you have that emotional protection from the fear of a verbal or a physical attack for your status that actually does real harm to you. That's so interesting. Um, Yeah, so I think because of that internal perception that allies can be harnessed to go in and kind of do those grunt tasks with with one-on-one conversations and change hearts and minds, and it feels safer to you to take the risks. And then I think the second piece there is that it actually is objectively safer for you. And that's the, that's the other piece of this is the external perception piece. So, you know, assuming that you have the opportunity to kind of out yourself as an ally or that that might be obvious if you're, say, white and doing, doing race equity work. Um, you know, but j- jokes aside, it is not always obvious when you are straight. Um, so, you know, I do think that when you're working within the community, you shouldn't pretend to be something that you aren't, but if you're engaging in one of these hearts and minds conversation, then you're clearly out, uh, as a member of the majority rather than the minority, (laughs) you know, and then this person you're talking to who's struggling to understand your perspective actually has that opportunity to ask you questions that may get much more real and down into a level that they wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable asking a member of that community. You know, some of those questions might be really inappropriate and you have a chance to reframe them and tell them why that's inappropriate. Um, But I think you have a chance to diffuse these very core gut fears and biases and address things, you know, really head on. And and I think that allies can use that privilege and in both of these internal and external ways to be really effective. Um, I just want to say just one one additional thing is that I think that... um, Oftentimes we think that allies are of any kind of civil rights movement are sources of a resource, right? It's boy, if we could, if we could just tap into, uh, straight money or, you know, right, then we could. But what you're articulating, and then we'll move on to the topic at hand, but what you're articulating is a much deeper level of engagement of allies that's so different and so much more powerful than 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 a check. So it's it's been really interesting to watch this particular movement as a model for others and understand those kinds of distinctions. So um, I I actually just wanted to hear you talk about that because I have heard you talk about it before. And part of the cool thing about having a podcast is you can, you could put it out there so other people can hear smart people say smart things. So, um, so thank you for that. Um, 
so let's let's get on to the to the business's hand. Um, so we're talking about planned giving. It is, um, you know, uh, I actually was connected to your organization at the time when you were getting those surprise gifts, didn't and had not yet um, started the engine. Um, and um, and I think not re- not every organization is ready to begin to secure a gift that comes from the assets of the donor rather than annual income. Um, uh, you know, and those assets are most often after the donor's passing. So, give us a sense of what what is an, what does it look like to be ready to do this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, plan giving is generally considered to sort of be the cap on the pyramid of philanthropic giving. So, for people not as familiar with that model, it's sort of starting with the concept of a base that involves the least amount of personal donor investment, both in terms of of money, but also in terms of organizational buy-in and loyalty, right? The pyramid goes up from there. So for many organizations, that might right now be a base of donors that are giving to things like, say, Facebook fundraisers because a friend asked you, or giving to events where you kind of want to be seen and you want to mingle and you want to feel good. But most of what you're giving is really going to your food and beverage for the night rather than a a big philanthropic buy-in. Right. So, you know, so that's sort of the base. And then the next year might be basic annual membership. And that might move up into monthly giving and then into major gifts and then ultimately into that cap of plan giving. And so, you know, your organization's mileage on that period, pyramid certainly may vary. But the idea is that a plan for giving at death represents really the most deep connection that a donor can have to you. And it, it usually requires, I think, three things. It, inv- it involves a deep commitment to and belief in that organization. It involves a belief that that organization will be there to responsibly use your gift in the future when the day comes that you pass. And it's also a fairly significant aspect of altruism because as a planned giving donor, you usually aren't going to be around to see the results of your gift or get all this kudos, right? Right. So, so there can't be any transactional. It is completely exactly. non-transactional. It's exactly. all about the relationship. I mean, yeah, and and I think there are some ways that certain sometimes there can be a transactional sort of recognition component to it. But it, but you're right; it's basically philanthropic in a, in its purest way. And so, getting to that question of what does ready look like, I'd say that means that an organization has to be ready and able to elicit that loyalty and that belief that it will be there in the future and that it will still be serving a mission that is similar to what it does right now in the present. And you have to be able to talk to your donors very consistently in a way that builds that confidence and that trust. So you have to be stable, you have to be trustworthy, you have to have longevity, and you have to have an actual individual donor base because planned gifts come from people, not from organizations like foundations. Yeah, good, good. Um, I, um, you know, I spent time planning this podcast, and it's so funny because Judy is in Seattle, and I'm actually going to Seattle on Monday, on Sunday, um, for a speaking gig. And um, I am sitting here listening to you and realizing that the biggest planned gift my organization at that time, Glad, ha- got was from a Microsoft employee who passed away and left many LGBT organizations millions of dollars. And he started out as a, a person we did not know who gave $250 every year and asked for audited financial statements in exchange for the $250. And I remember my development staff saying, why do we have to send this guy $250? I mean, send this guy the financial statements for $250 gift. 
I said, because he asked. Right. And so you're absolutely right. He started, he started at the bottom of that pyramid. That's so funny that I actually did not think about Rick in this, as I was planning for this podcast, but the pyramid makes that brought it home for me. Yeah. Well, and there are lots of lessons in Rick's giving, but uh, I'd encourage people that there was actually a beautiful article in the um, Chronicle of Philanthropy a couple of years ago that, that uh, at the end of the time of, of Rick's planned gift, which came out over a number of years, when that that giving was was wrapping up to the organizations he gave to, so I would encourage anybody to go and find that article and read it because there's there's a lot of really important lessons in how he structured his gift. We will actually post we will link to that um, to that article. It's about a uh, a very kind, generous guy named Rick Wyland. So we'll link to that article in the in the notes below the podcast. So so I I um, characterize that there's sort of a queasiness to this and. I want you to tell me, am I, am I right that there is? Um, and, and if there is, um, is, there a, there's a, is there a shift that, that's necessary to get folks ready to think about actually just jumping into this? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, the queasiness might come from two different factors. So, and one of them I think we'll, we might talk about a little bit later, which is more that sort of how do you just deal with the topic of death, right? Right. Um, but I think there's also the queasiness of, you know, what does this mean to take something that is much more complicated or it feels much more complicated than just sort of cash in hand this year? And the fear of the the unknown, right? How does What does it mean to rely on some money coming in or the idea of money coming in that isn't planned for and that is not, is not um, reliable in coming each year? So I do think it takes an organizational shift, both inside the full staff, including the development team, and in terms of your organizational messaging. So you first have to get everyone to believe that it is possible to start this and that it's worth that investment. And that means inspiring your board and inspiring any of your staff who are skeptical about it. Everyone needs to have the same talking points about the organization and its future. So if you've been out consistently talking about how your intent as executive director is to work yourself out of your job because you're going to achieve all your goals and you're going to wrap up shop, you can't really easily pivot to a message of your longevity and why somebody should make a gift in their estate that might not come for 30 years. So, you know, Jen, you talk a lot about the twin engines of the plane, right? The executive director and the board chair. And I think it's really important that we make sure that in any organization wanting to start a plan giving program, they both have to see the vision. They both have to understand what does the organization's future hold? So you might need to get those two players on board and then get the board to buy into a five-year strategic plan or something like that that is forward-looking if they haven't already been doing that to make that stability or that growth agenda very clear so that everyone can talk the talk and really be inspirational. And then I think you have to reduce or remove any internal organizational barriers, particularly in your development department, that might create disincentives for people to be asking for planned gifts. So what do you mean by that? So I see this sometimes in probably more in universities than in a typical nonprofit, um, but, but sometimes it's there as well. So for example, major gifts officers and membership officers are usually going to be the people who have those best relationships with your existing donors and are in the best position to know their lives, to know whether they might be open to plan gifts, to know information about their assets, their home, their other organizations they give to philanthropically. You know, what's up? Do they have children, et cetera? 
So you want to make sure that your MGOs are incentivized, right? That that they're trained, of course, but but that they're incentivized, whether that's just through credit, you know, sort of internal credit, or whether it's through compensation, to be talking with your plan giving officers about that and to be talking with the donors about that. They have to be trained to talk knowledgeably. They need to be opening the door so that the organizational plan giving point person can come in and have deeper talk with the donor about it. If the MGOs think it's a waste of their time because the only thing they're appreciated for is the cash in hand that fiscal year, you've cut off a major source of your connection and your information that's necessary for your plan giving. So I heard you say planned giving officer and I'm, and I'm thinking about budget approvals and I'm thinking about making an investment in a person or an infrastructure for a program that that the board can, you can't make an argument to the board that there is there's a return on that investment of x right um and um so i'm what i'm hearing so if i can play back is that that you need a you actually need dedica- a dedicated person to be to be leading this effort it kind of needs to be kind of a standalone initiative within development and an investment is required so um did I hear that right? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, what I would say is you don't really have to have a full-time plan-giving staff member dedicated at the outset, especially if you're a small organization, but you should have a development-trained staffer who is is dedicated both to supporting your plan-giving program logistically, which means, you know, marketing it, being able to to talk the talk and and understand the language of, of what does it mean to actually give an estate gift. Um, but also being able to deal on the back end when you get a gift with the state lawyers, et cetera, with your CFO at the time, you know, of acceptance. But then also that plan giving dedicated person has to be able to cultivate prospects and, and talk with your committed legacy donors. So again, doesn't have to be full time, but, and that's, ah. that is where Lambda Legal started before I was there. Even they, the deputy director of development was doing this work as a, a significant portion of what he did on a daily basis and reached the point where they realized they really had to go in order to scale up. They had to have a full time person. The other thing I heard you say, Judy, was that, so I, I want to go back to this earlier point, is that you've got to actually get the board to agree to invest in something that doesn't have a very clear, tangible payoff in the short term. And I just want to amplify something that you said. Everything about this program, from what I'm hearing you say, is you've got to get your organization forward-looking. And if you don't, that this is just not going to fly. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, I don't think that you, I, what I really think fundamentally you have to do is sort of has a, have a persuasive setup for the decision makers, what, whoever those may be. And, you know, that obviously depends who you are. If you are the development director, that decision maker might be your, your CFO or it might be your ED. Um, if you are the ED, it might be your board chair. Um, but fundamentally for your decision makers, you have to be able to show them some data to explain what types of donors tend to make planned gifts and show that you have those donors and that you have a plan to get get them and cultivate them. Um, but I think you also have to be able to explain to your decision makers how planned gifts can be built into your budget. And you know, typically you're gonna need to invest for a while. It could be a number of years before you start seeing gifts coming in. It 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 really might be investing you know, it could be 10 years before for this, depending upon how big you are and, and how, how deep your organization runs with, with a number of people. You might be investing in both messaging and relationship building before you see the rewards. But, you know, 
once they start to come in, it's really smart, I think, to start off by keeping your annual budget expectations low because you can't control when they're going to come in. You're probably going to want to build a reserve fund and have your board be prepared for that idea that, that when gifts are numerous and large, you want to reserve some of that you know, to offset for the years when they're going to be lower. Industry standards typically say, again, once gifts start to come in, that you want to do, uh, you want to build around a five-year rolling average for your budget. So knowing that about half your years are going to be high, half your year is going to be low, you may start with a trajectory that's just going up because it's going from zero. Um, but, but, you know, overall, that's going to flatten out and you need to be prepared for the harder years before it starts becoming a really critical part of your budget. Interesting. Interesting. But yeah, but I, I, I do think that... Um I, I guess part of what I was thinking is that, you know, there are, there are organizations that do strategy work because they feel like they kind of have to, or they could sort of, it's like a, it's like a medicine or something. They approach it as opposed to part of this is, is creating a culture of aspiration and forward looking that you build into the organization that the donors with whom, with whom you engage and cultivate and steward over the course of a year, they feel that too. They feel that future component to your work in some kind of really strong way. Did I, is that, yeah, I, that feels that, you know, I hadn't really thought too much about that, but if it, that feels like a, a, a condition for success, no? It is. And it's where, again, you, you know, you really have to have the programmatic tie-in, which is why I would say all of your team, not just your development staff, all of your team needs to know about this and needs to be able to talk about it because often your program officers, the people who are in the trenches doing the, the substance of what you do are going to be some of your best people to connect Right. And and again, we haven't gotten into sort of all the nitty gritty about this, but but the people who are most likely to be giving to you are people who have been investing in your organization for quite a while. And so those people probably are more likely to know your staff and to understand your program. They've been seeing it for a long time. And so they, you know, talking to them and being able to inspire them about that future is really important. And and the best people often to do that aren't just the development staff. It might be the development staff brings those folks in to, to talk and be inspirational about the goals. Um, that is completely, completely true. And in fact, I, I am now reminded that when I went up to Seattle to meet with Rick Wyland for the first time, I did not go alone. And I did not bring a development person. I brought a program person, actually. And I, you know, sort of, I had, I, it was, I did, planned giving was not even on my radar screen. Um, it's just good practice, but it, but it does pay dividends on, on the planned giving side. One very quick question. Is there any metric about, um, like, size of organization that, or actually how old the organization is that makes it more or less ready? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I think there is a direct metric. I would tend to say that, you know, existing for probably at least 20 years would give a lot of that sense of stability that the organizations are looking for. But I wouldn't say that is your your rule of thumb by any means. If you have been around for five or 10 years and you know that this is an organization that's got the legs, it's going to be there for the long haul. And you can talk about that in an inspiring and clear way. Um, you know, if you're successful, you have a strong base, then I think you can go ahead and start. I don't, I don't think it's ever too early to start that. It's just the reality of knowing you're doing some early investing. You aren't likely to probably see the rewards of that for quite a while, but but that's okay. It's, yeah, that's that, 
That's good. That's good. So um, I do want to talk about the sort of a couple of nitty gritties about establishing a, a planned giving program. But bef- bef- as you get started, um, clearly there are, you know, there, because you get surprise gifts, there, there are folks out there in the universe that very likely have already put you your organization in their estate plans. And I, I just, I'm not because I'm not a planned giving expert, which is why, you know, one of, one of the reasons I asked you to help us through this is how do you learn that? Yeah. And that can be complicated. I will say, I mean, I, I think when you're talking about people who are, who are otherwise known to you, you just don't know that question that it is a very good idea to ask your full membership, you know, both because you're going to learn the answer and also because it's a little bit of a pushbowl kind of question, mm-hmm. right? very active asking whether they have done this is a bit of an implication they kind of think they should, right? So what I would recommend is that when you're launching a planned giving program, that you start by sending out a membership survey. Ideally, I would I would give options on that, um, particularly if you have a wide range of age in your donors. Uh-huh. Um, that both by snail mail and by email. And I would ask, you know, first, do you know that, you know, XYZ Charity has a plan giving program? You know, number two, we're trying to build up our new legacy council membership list. Have you already included XYZ Charity in your ah, state plans? Ah. You know, if so, then you follow up with a may we list you as an inaugural member of our legacy council. And, and then number three, you know, are you interested, if you haven't done this, are you interested in learning more? That could be by mail, by email, please call me. And then you have to follow up with those leads. This is this is the whole point, right? You are you are both seeding the idea out there to everybody who gets that mailing that this is something you do now and that it's important they should think about it. But also you're gonna get some answers and you really wanna wanna use those leads and follow up. So yeah, and I and I want to say, I mean, there are a few things I think that um, are really important when you're starting and establishing the the program. And and one of those is as I said, you don't have to have the full-time staffer. Um, but you do, I think, need to have the person who's dedicated. I'd also recommend that you find a pro bono estate planning lawyer who could just be on call for you. That's not to work with the donor directly. It's not to work on their estate plans. It's to answer questions from your development staff about how you help a donor understand how to achieve their own giving goals and work with their own lawyer, right? When you are armed with more information, it, it inspires confidence in the donor. And then I think you should also think about establishing a program with some pre-planned um, types of recognition for the committed donors that will occur both during and after their lives. That might be a, you know, your planned giving circle needs to have a name. You should think about where you're going to promote that. Is that going to be in your annual report? You know, where is it going to be? Um, and then what kind of, what levels are truly transformational for your organization such that they really warrant special treatment like naming a position on your staff or rooms in your building? You don't want to be surprised by having a donor who asks for that kind of recognition because a lot of the big big charities, you know, arts organizations, et cetera, are already doing that. Mm-hmm. So be ready, but know that probably most of your donors don't need that. Right. That's very interesting. So um, clearly you start with kind of, kind of surveying the landscape, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, I guess I, I, I was thinking a lot about, uh, you know, so this follow-up, I would like to learn more. Um, clearly, they're not donors that are going to respond poorly to uh, to this conversation. And I, I feel like there's like a myth out there that – uh, donors are going to respond poorly to this conversation. And I guess that's the death thing, right? 
Um, can you bust that myth? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will tell you honestly. When I was was leading plan giving at, at Lambda, it was a joyous job. It was my favorite of all of the development jobs that I held because talking to people who are considering doing this for your organization is a truly uplifting experience. These are kind and generous and yeah. altruistic, awful people who care and love the same mission you care and love about, right? So I think that plan giving is really just like any other type of philanthropic giving it, at its core. And your job as a development officer, your executive director, whatever, you know, whatever your role is, is not to make this donor give you money. <laughs> your job is to show them how do they enact their own vision? How do they turn their own dream into reality? How do they feel wonderful by supporting an organization that puts their values into action? If the prospective donor, you know, as they probably already do, understands who you are and what you do, but they don't want to give, the truth is you don't really want to try to talk them into this. What you want is to be able to inspire this person and then help them figure out how do they want to do the good that they want to do, right? What's the, what's the vehicle? And if you do that, I really believe they aren't going to respond badly. They're either going to say yes, and they will often do even more than you expected, or they'll say no, but they won't hold it against you for asking. And it's also, again, a seed that's planted for something in the future. Your job is to open that door, and their job is to decide whether they walk through. And um, you're going to feel good about that at the end of the day. Um, so I do a lot of work with boards, and um, it seems revelatory when I say, once you have asked, your job is done. Your job is to ask. Their job is to decide. And it seems revelatory to them, which I always think is kind of funny, as if somehow or another you have control over what decisions donors make, right? It's funny. Um, I um, I would bet that you probably get a lot of, gee, I really hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I think you do. I mean, again, I think it depends on on – why you're there and what your plan is. And I do think it's really important that you've done your legwork before you go into a meeting. I mean, it's not that sometimes spontaneously it won't come up, but but if you've done your legwork, you probably know that this is a person who, you know, again, is not a one-time, first-time donor to your organization who's a 25-year-old, right? You're going to be talking to somebody who is likely at a stage in their life where they're thinking about estate planning. And that, that, by the way, does not necessarily mean somebody who's 80. It's probably much more likely that you're going to have this conversation with somebody who is in the, a major life stage plan or, or I'm sorry, major life stage change. Um, you know, a lot of these, these donors would be making wills when, you know, when they're getting married, when they're having kids, when they've come into money, when they're considering moving, when they're considering retirement, right? So somewhere maybe more in that, 40 to 65 range. And, you know, so maybe they thought about it, maybe they haven't yet. And maybe what you're talking to them about is something that um, actually is a real benefit to them because it helps them think about how they are going to structure that next phase. And, and yeah, but uh, so sometimes it is a surprise to them to consider it, um, but it isn't usually and shouldn't be a surprise to them to think about um, what they want to do with your organization and how your values match up with theirs. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's it. it uh, one of the things that you've said here is is that it's it's just like any other donor's relationship and a natural extension of the kind of giving that this donor um, makes. And I think um, uh, that. 
you know, I think that that actually um, is a framing that I, I think other people don't really think of. They think of it as something that's really over here and it's kind of, you know, and I, but I think if you think about it that way, it feels really, really different. And I, uh, I would think that like any kind of giving, right, it's an opportunity, and and you're planting a seed for that person to have an opportunity to make an impact. And, you know, certainly we talk about that with living donors, but my goodness, to be able to have an impact um, in, after you pass is, feels like that's, you know, um, I am reminded of a um, TED talk I saw once of a, um, an e, a guy who was an ER paramedic and um he would often be um, driving, folk, getting people to the hospital who were not going to make it. And they were pretty clear in their heads that they were not going to make it to the hospital. And one of the questions that they would ask this paramedic, and that's why the TED Talk was so powerful, this is a guy that <laughs> the guy they'd never met before the accident or the whatever it might be. They would look him in the eye and they'd say, do you think people will remember me? To a total stranger, right? There's something very powerful about that notion that you will have made some kind of mark. And this presents such an interesting opportunity for people in this regard. Absolutely. No, that's exactly right. And I and it is deeply meaningful. And it's why I say I really love doing that kind of work and connecting with people about that, because it really is them thinking, what is that footprint I've left? And how important that really is for me. Yeah, no, that's a that, that's a gift in and of itself. So, speaking of gifts, we are um, we have the gift of being joined today by Judy O'Kelly. We're chatting about planned giving. Judy is currently the chief program officer of the National LGBT Bar, um, but she has been a legal advocate, largely in the LGBT Center, for nearly here we go a quarter of a century. I'm just I can I can see Judy cringing. <laughs> Um, um, in the trenches in a big way for a long time. So I wanted to, I I thought it might be fun and I don't know, you'll decide if this would be fun to do a short role play, but, but but before we do that, what is the real vest? So if you could articulate sort of what's the real value to the organization uh, about having a robust planned giving program. And I'm not, ta- you can talk about money if you want to, but I'm, I want to hear value. What do you see as the real value of a planned giving program? I mean, I think some of it is exactly what we've just been talking about. It's a, it's a point of much deeper connection with the people who are already your stakeholders, right? And that whether that's a current donor or whether it's a prospective donor, whether it's somebody who's received services from your organization, it's a deep form of connection to have that program and to start some conversations around it. Um, but I, I do think that it's important to know, as we talked about earlier, when you start off, it's going to be hit or miss. It's going to take time. The most important thing with this is consistency. You have to ask repeatedly. And I don't mean to ask an individual person over and over and over again. Don't be annoying. But you know, you have to put it out there. You have to get it on your website. You have to get it in your newsletters. You have to say things in lots and lots of repeated places where people are going to see this monthly. Absolutely. When is the time that they're actually going to be walking into their lawyer and think, oh yeah, that's the last thing I saw. But, but in terms of impact on that organization, you know, if you're, if you're small to medium organization, it doesn't take a lot of planned gifts to make a pretty significant impact in your bottom line. 
If you're serving on the board, say, of a local charity that has five staff members and an annual budget of a few hundred thousand dollars that are that are closely dedicated, you know, and you you don't have the ability to easily hire and you know somebody new, right? It's a, it's a it's a tight budget. You might be very heavily grant based. You might only have a handful of donors that are giving you more than a thousand dollars annually. But if you've you know, been around for 25, 30 years, you have a loyal base of members, people who've been getting benefits from you for a long time, you know, you have a great starting place. And receiving just say one planned gift a year of $10,000 could start enabling your organization to do some things that it really couldn't do otherwise. If you, you know, happen to receive a gift every five years of $100,000, that starts to get transformational. Uh I would say in the short term, you think of planned gifts as representing a potential for special one-time opportunities. And after 10 to 20 years of your investment in this, which yes, sounds like a long time now, but if you don't do it, those years are going to pass anyway, right? And when you are 10 to 20 years down the road, it might be that that plan giving program is going to be representing 10 or more percent of your annual budget and be really necessary to your operations. So I would just say again, if you have those key factors of stability and trust and longevity, start now. Just start now and start building that deeper connection. It's a a really important thing to do. Awesome. Um, Okay. So let's, um, let's, let's, let's play around just a little bit. Um, It's not, it's an art, not a science, right? So, um, uh, okay. So here's the scenario in our little quick role play before we end. Uh, So um, you ask me and my wife, Eileen, out to lunch and uh, let's say you're the person who does planned giving for an animal rescue organization. Say, my, you know that my wife and I have two rescue pets from your organization. And let's say I, we've been $10,000 donors for, the, for like a number of years. Um, I was asked to be on the board. I said, no, I was too busy. I, you also know that, I, um, that my wife and I have three kids in our 20s. Um, so the other thing is that you're, you happen to know my attorney, um, and maybe this isn't really something that you would know, but I'm just, we're pretending that, you know, that we do have wills, but beyond that, you don't know anything. We're not up for renewal. And, um, and maybe this is a false premise. You'll tell me. And I don't know that you're coming to talk about planned giving, but we love an opportunity to see the rescues and grab lunch with you. We, you're somebody we like very much. So let me ask the first question. Is, the, is, there, is there anything wrong with the setup? I mean, I would definitely want to tell you in advance that I'm coming to discuss or that you're coming here and we're going out to discuss planned giving. I deeply believe in that transparency. I think it's part of the ethic I was talking about of helping donors do what they actually want to do. And and not surprising someone. Um, but I think otherwise your setup is great. You know, I, I, it certainly helps that you like me. And, uh, <laughs> well, I think there's, it's, it's important in any kind of a role play to include some authenticity. So, okay. So yeah. let's assume, let's assume that you have, that we have, we've said, uh, yeah, sure. That, that's interesting. We actually don't have anybody, uh, maybe we'd say we don't, we actually haven't done any, um, planned giving for any charitable organizations in our wills. And that's kind of a new thought to us. So sure, let's have lunch. So, okay. So how would, so that's what we said. Now we, now we're sitting what is it, how do you approach it? And what do you, what does success look like for you? You know, I mean, I would like, again, any other 
major gift conversation or, or other donor conversation that you'd have, you know, I would start off with that bonding small talk, right? How are your kids, Joan? I haven't seen your kids since high school, right? What are your plans now that you and and Eileen are empty nesters? Yep. And, and that kind of thing both helps with the ice breaking, of course, you know, it's genuine because you do actually know the kids if you're close and, you know, you ask those questions, but it also helps you to understand what does life look like for this couple, right? Where where might they be starting to think about putting the rest of their energy and their time and yes, their money as they're sort of heading into the next phase of, of their life, whatever that may be. And you might learn something from this that makes you decide it's not the right time to make this ask. Yeah. You know, I mean, you might, you might learn that something really big and traumatic has just happened and it's just not right to do this right now. And, and that's important to learn. But assuming that's not the case, you know, that that I would go next into a really sincere thank you for all your loyal giving. You know, I would say, you know, Jen, I looked up your giving before I came here and obviously you, know, you and I are old friends, but I realized this is your 17th year in a row of giving to Animal Rescue. That has meant so much to us. You know, I, do you remember when you started getting involved with this? Remember that that space we rented and that little building off County Road 18 and how we were turning away as many dogs a year as we were able to accept in our no-kill shelter, right? Uh-huh. Remember I that? do. Oh, sure, yes. I do. And now we have our own building. We have this deep network of foster families. We haven't had to turn away a dog for the last three years. And, and you're one of those families that has gotten us there. And I have to say, by the way, it was so nice seeing Shadow when I came in. You were so wonderful. <laughs> uh, you gave me forever home, right? I'm sorry about midnight. I know it's really hard to lose midnight last year. It, it, it was. It was. But, it, you know, that happens. Yeah, it does. But what I want to tell you, really, why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> this is hilarious. I do not have I do not have a dog named Midnight or Shadow, <laughs> just so you know. And I'm actually having a hard time keeping a straight face here. Okay, keep going. Uh, well, you know, what I, what I want you to know is that our mission is really continuing, right? We have huge expansion plans. We've been seeing that shelters all over the state have been struggling. And so I wanted to let both of you be some of the first to know that our board has developed a 10-year strategic plan. We are working to both expand our feral spay and neuter program. We're working to expand our public education campaign about pet ownership, especially in our college communities, right? Because we know that that's where a lot of pet abandonment happens. And we're eventually hoping to be able to supplement or even take over operations in our three neighboring counties. And that's just the tip of the iceberg for our systemic change. We have huge, huge dreams, and we can't do that without you. You've already been there for us. And part of what I wanted to be here today about is to ask you to consider putting our organization into your state plans to help ensure that we get to keep, keep, keep this work going and keep saving lives a long time after you and I are gone. So I wanted to ask you, have you ever thought about this? Um, thought good. Um, great, great question, Judy. Um, and I, and I, I will speak for Eileen because <laughs> I have to, because she's actually not here at my office. Um, uh, no, I, I don't think we have. And I, I think, I think the way that we've thought about it, like we have these three kids. So we sort of think, well, shouldn't we just like, leave it and divide it by three? Like, isn't that, I don't know, Judy, I mean, you're the plant giving expert. What, 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 how do people address that? I'm struggling with this. I, I, you know, clearly we love the organization uh, and it's intriguing to us. And then, but how do other people who are in, who decide to do estate planning contend with um, sort of this, this issue about, okay, so what, 
okay, do I do this and then set aside some money that I don't leave to my kids? Is that what, is that what, is that what people do, Judy? Right, right. Okay, so I'm going to take a minute as an aside. I want to just note that after you make an ask, and I want to say, Jen, this is something that I have heard from you many times when I've heard you do development trainings. When you make an ask, then you shut up. Right? <laughs> just like an annual gift ask, right? You be quiet. You let those people think about what you said. You let them respond. You don't try to fill an awkward space and end up dialing it back with your own words where you say, oh, gosh, I'm really sorry I made that ask. Right. If, and then when they're interested and they ask questions like you did, then you keep going. So, you know, in terms of the question that you're asking me, Joan, you know, about about kids, you know, I, I see people doing this a lot of different ways. Right. I mean, certainly I, what I see is that your kids have been part of this work with you. They've certainly had the, the benefits of having, you know, your your pets in your life and they've been coming to the shelter and and I think as they get older, what they're going to really appreciate is knowing that you do you did leave a legacy, and they're going to really love being part of that. And so I'm going to again do an aside here and say that that's um, you know it is true that I think that working with older people who don't have kids can sometimes make this easier because yes. they do have to do something with their funds and correct you know but but they're going to have people they love and and regardless of whether it's children or others, you know this is still a decision that. That has to be made. And I, you know, you see a lot of couples with adult children giving tremendous amounts philanthropically, both in their life and in, and in their estate plans. Um, what I would say is make sure that you discuss your giving plans with your adult children and, and encourage the donors to do that so there are no surprises and there's no, no sense on the part of the kids that there's been any coercion. Um, I think also that from the, the staff point of view, you want to think more carefully about recognition opportunities here because kids really do want to see their parents remembered warmly. Oh. And, you know, and, and I see that, that a number of adult children like to set up endowments and major gifts and their parents honor after their passing, even if it wasn't pre-planned. So I think you have a real opportunity here to, to set up something where the kids are going to feel really, really good about it. So, um, yeah. I, I, I have to say something, Judy, that was a really good answer. And it is, and there's some authenticity to this role play. Cause I, I don't know that we actually, I think we struggle with this very question. And, um, so I, I, I can say selfishly, I put the role play in because I wanted to hear what you had to say. Um, and, um, I think that's just, it makes so much sense and it's so smart. So, um, uh, I'll follow up with an ask for you. Yes, of course you will. Of course you will. Um, but you actually, that was a really, uh, the, the, the kid thing actually does feel like a barrier, a barrier to entry in some ways. So, um, I thought that was, I think it did an awesome job, Judy, and you have opened my eyes to plant giving in a new way. So I, I appreciate that. Um, I also appreciate that you have potentially opened, uh, uh, listeners ears to sort of the benefits and the value and the sort of the organic next stepness of planned giving. And I just wanted to say um, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for the work you do. Uh, and as a member of the LGBT community, it would be, I would be remiss if I did not say thank you for the work that you have done on behalf of me and my family over the years. So that's our story about planned giving for today. Um, I hope that it will make you think uh, if you haven't started, right? What, here's what Judy said. Go, go ahead. <laughs> 
right? If you have, what were the three things again, Judy? Oh boy. Uh, you need to have longevity. You need to have the donors, donors trust in you and know that you will be there for a long time. And ideally you have donors who have altruism, altruistic instincts. There you go. And I, I can't imagine that most of you listening today um, don't fall into at least two of the three of those and should be thinking about it if you don't have all three legs of the stool. So with that, we are going to take our leave. Um, hope you have enjoyed this conversation. Hope you've taken some good notes. I always feel like if I could see people's, that people had taken notes, I would know that this podcast had meaningful impact. But because I can't see it, I'll just hope. And um, as always, join us at joangarrywith2rs.com for weekly free blog content and um, lots and lots of topics on our uh, podcast, which we've been doing now for a couple of years. Yikes. Um, and um, uh, as many of you know, I have a, a resource for small board and staff leaders of small but mighty nonprofits called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. And you can learn more about that at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. It is a monthly uh, subscription membership uh, for uh, that provides resource in terms of content and community. And you can learn tons more at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. And that's it for me. And I look forward to uh, sharing other experts and other advice with you next time. Thanks so much. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.